So uh, I was pastor of a small church in a small town in Kansas, um, gosh, eight years ago, uh, ten years ago. <clears throat> and, I, you know, by the time I was done, I kind of had my, my sermon prep down to a science. I kind of knew where things would go and, and how long it was going to go. And during first service, I looked at my notes last night. I thought, oh, man, this is only going to take about 28 minutes, just guessing based on where it was on the page. I found out I'm wrong, uh, so, uh, and I kind of talk fast, so uh, if you take notes, you're going to be sad if you want to try and catch everything, um, but I promise it, it will be on the internet at some point, so you can, you can go back. I'm going to try and uh, make sure that I slow down a little bit so that we can keep everything going. <clears throat> I was thinking the last time I, I did a service was not my normal prep, because uh, it was in the middle of Australia, and my notes were written on like a torn piece of cardboard from an MRE box. That's a little different sort of event, so... Um, but uh, yeah, I do work with, uh, with Marines and Sailors, uh, you know, great group of, of young guys. Sometimes we say that it's the world's largest youth group, um, but uh, <clears throat> there are people I have to take care of that are, that are a little bit uh, older than me, so that does happen. But uh, one of the things I've been working on the last couple of years is an uh, ethical formation project, and the way that I've been going about this is uh, using uh, pop cultural texts to talk about ethics. Because that's always been a real interest of mine is, is where faith and culture intersect, uh, public theology, all that sort of stuff. And so uh, part of that is just driven by the fact that I'm, I'm kind of a TV and movie nerd. Um, you know, I want you to think about that. Do you th think about uh, like, like a TV show that you like or a movie that you like or even like a book series that you read pretty faithfully? I read this thing on the internet that said the richest people making money on Amazon right now are people who are publishing romance novels one chapter at a time on ebooks. So there are people linking something together that, that people will follow. And, and not that I'm advocating reading romance novels, I think it's a bad idea. It's just as bad for you as romantic comedy. Um, but I want you to think about that idea, about a story that keeps bringing you back. Uh, because good stories will do that. Good stories will start with a story that grips you, gets you interested. Something about the story is interesting. Something about the situation. Something about the setup is something that will pull you in. Uh, but then when a story does its job right, the characters can drive the story. So the, the external doesn't have to be as exciting anymore. It's the characters and how they've built them up uh, and, and what happens with them. But what you'll find sometimes is, is what I've noticed. There's, there's been some shows throughout you know, my life where uh, my wife Amanda and I will watch a show together and it'll, it'll hit four or five seasons and one of the main characters will do something and I'll just sit up and be like, nope, that's, that's not what they'd do. Uh, because for four seasons you've been showing me who this character is and now you're going to have them do something completely outside of who you've built them to be. That's where I get this, this idea of what I've titled the sermon, Character is Fate. I, I stole that from, uh, from the Greek philosopher Heraclitus, uh, who's you know, been dead for a long time. Uh, but what he had to say was important because the, the Stoics would later adopt that phrase. They were talking about how who you are and how you respond to things is much more significant than what those external circumstances are that come at you. So we're going to be talking about this interplay of, of character, story, how you respond to the world around you. All of these things come into play as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 11. So we're going to get there. I'm not going to read through it all. We, we had the service where we read through the text. I'm going to highlight some, some notes as we get to each part. Um, but before we can get into it, I, I want to acknowledge the challenges we have in looking at this text in particular. Uh, and, and really, when we're looking at any Old Testament text, we who live this side of the cross 
have to kind of filter the message through uh, of how God was interacting with his people. I think there's a lot of continuity in, in who God is and how he responds to the people, but as the covenant changes and God has definitively revealed himself in Jesus Christ, things are different. And we have a unique challenge when looking at the life of Saul. We know what's going to happen. You know, if, you, if you've ever read through any of the, the Old Testament literature, you, you know what's going to happen with Saul. You know that Saul, if you've been here for the past few weeks, you know something's coming with Saul. Saul is not the solution for Israel's problems. What I want you to do, as much as you can, is kind of put that on the back burner. Uh, come to this text as, as somebody who is reading it where the author's intent is going to be met, where they're like, let me present this for you so you can look at who Saul is and we're, we're really focusing on heart issues for him. And then I also want you to think about uh, why. Why this text? What can you learn from the kingship of Saul? Uh, because First and Second Samuel, the, the, the books of the kings, the books of the chronicles, are often used as sort of a litmus test for leadership. We look at Saul and we're like, see, just because he's tall and handsome doesn't mean he's a good leader. And so we take all these lessons, and those are important lessons, and they're, they're there. They're not, they're not absent from the text. But I want you to think about how you're Saul. You know, as we look at this book, how are you Samuel? How are you Saul? How are you David when we get to him? What impact does that have on you, even if your role is not one uh, of leadership? Look for where this speaks to you and hone in on how Saul is you and find the truths and application of how you follow Jesus. So we're going to start by looking at the narrative itself. Look at how the story builds and pulls us into the characters. And the story comes to us in three phases. First is the revenge of Nahash and the desperation of God's people. This is verses 1 through 4. Let me give you the condensed version. Uh, Nahash has uh, chased down tribes on the east side of the Jordan. There's some men in Jabesh Gilead who he's uh, besieging the city. Uh, they make terms. They say, hey, we, we want peace. What are your terms? He says, you can have peace, but I get to scoop out all of your right eyes. Those are bad terms. Um, this is kind of a big deal because people say, give us seven days to see if anybody can deliver us. I don't know why Nahash agrees to this, but he's pretty confident in his position. So he's like, sure, seven days, then it's over. And so <clears throat> why does this happen where it happens when it happens? Remember that we're following the period of the judges. And if you look at towards the end of the book of Judges, uh, there, there is all of this turmoil in Gibeah. And, and this is a place that's happening east of the Jordan River. If you're super familiar with the book of Numbers, um, you're the only one in the club, uh, but um, there's a thing that happens where uh, as they're starting to settle the land, some people from the tribes of Ephraim come to the leadership of Israel and they say, this land's awesome. We, we know that God gave us what's west of the Jordan, but we, we kind of want this. Is that okay? And leadership says, you got to help us conquer the land. It, it's not fair that you should have peace while your brothers should fight for what, what they've been given. So they're like, cool, we'll, we'll do that. We'll help you fight and then we're going to settle here. And so these people are a little bit isolated from the rest of Israel. And they're up here fighting these guys, the Ammonites, who are kind of uh, cousins to the Israelites way back in the day. Uh, the, the Dead Sea Scroll community has a version of 1 Samuel where they've added in a little note that, that Nahash had done this to all the tribes east of the Jordan. And Jabesh Gilead was the last remaining city where he hadn't taken the right eye of all the fighting men. Now this is bad because that would render them incapable of self-defense. You, you would hold the shield up, covering the left eye, use the right eye to do all the fighting you got to do. So if you don't have a right eye, you're no good for anything but servitude. 
So this is a problem. They ask for their seven days, they have, they have no hope, and they need a deliverer. And that's the second phase of the narrative, the recompense of God's deliverer. This happens in verses 5 through 11. Saul comes in, he hears the message from Gibeah, says the, the spirit of the Lord rushes in on him, his anger is greatly kindled, he takes a yoke of oxen, divides them up, sends them out to Israel, says everybody get here, we're going to fight, if you don't this is what I'm going to do to your livelihood. And so the people have to respond and they go and, uh, and are going to deliver the people of Gibeah. Saul divides his people up into three companies. Uh, they let messengers into the city, hey, we're going to deliver you guys. And they take out the Ammonites so that they strike them from the first watch of the morning till the heat of the day so that no two are left together. So it's a complete and utter victory from all of Israel being united under Saul's leadership. So this is pretty significant when it says the Spirit of God rushes in and he's kindled in great anger. This is significant because the only time that that same sort of phrase is used, that the Spirit of God rushes in, is with the judge Samson. And so the author of 1 Samuel is trying to point to us that Saul stands in the line of the judges, that, that he is God's chosen deliverer who is empowered to bring salvation for God's people. <clears throat> Him dividing the, the oxen up into 12 parts and sending them out echoes the book of Judges as well. And him dividing his company, or his, uh, his force into three companies, has echoes of the story from Gideon. So all of this is there to, to remind the people that as the Spirit of God has empowered Saul, uh, that, that, that God, or pardon me, that Saul cannot do anything without that, that empowerment from God. <clears throat> and really, the, the whole passage, if you remember a few weeks back, Pastor Rick talking about the, the setup of a passage in, in chiasm where there's, you know, A, B, C, D, C, B, A. The focus is on that D, that middle, that hinge. The hinge of this passage is verse 6 where Saul is empowered by the Spirit of God. And so this is pretty important, this, this all-day punishment of, of Nahash. They've gotten what uh, justice they deserve. And, and there's also a contrast with the judges. Um, the last four chapters of the book of Judges are, are kind of dicey. You know, I, I was once a youth pastor as well as a senior pastor, and parents would tell me, oh, I, don't, I don't let my kids watch rated R movies. And I'd say, do you let them read Judges? Because um, it's really awful. Like those last four chapters, there's this refrain, in those days in Israel there was no king, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So there's this, this moral degradation spiral in Judges. And a lot of those last chapters take place in and around Gibeah. So for, for deliverance to come from Gibeah is both an echo of judges and a change in what has happened and in the way God is delivering his people. There's a sense of redemption uh, for both the area and the people themselves. And then the third phase of our narrative is the renewal of the kingdom. <clears throat> so there's these worthless men, if you remember from chapter 10, uh, that's the way that scripture describes them, who say, you know, shall Saul really reign over us? Uh, and now that this great victory has been won by the hand of Saul, empowered by God, there's some people who have said, who was it that said that? Oh, that's right, that was those guys. Let's grab those guys and let's kill them. And, uh, and Saul says, no, 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 no one will die today. God has worked victory in Israel. There has been salvation. And there's a renewal of the kingdom. Samuel gathers everyone at Gilgal and renews the kingdom with them. <clears throat> so this is a, a pretty important thing because the, the kingdom renewal is an idea that encompasses both who the king is and who God is. 
A lot of the commentaries on this passage see this, this renewal as a reaffirmation of God's kingship. I don't know that that's necessarily that clear. Um, we know that people have rejected God as king. Uh, and we often see in the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah a, a two-step process where they are anointed king and then they are renewed as king. Uh, one of those uh, halves of the kingdom even had sort of like a year where it was your, your regnal year before you became king. David himself would be king in Hebron for seven years before he's got a unified monarchy in Jerusalem for another 33. So I don't think it's that easy to say. I just think... Uh, this honors what has been accomplished, that God has delivered his people. It commits to that which God has already commanded, that, that Saul as the king would be the spirit-empowered agent of God's salvation and his justice and compassion. And so we've seen how this story is kind of set up. There's, there's the revenge of, of, of Nahash, there's, there's the, the, the re, uh, recompense of God's deliverer, the renewal of the kingdom. We have the story built for us. We've seen how Saul acts. Uh, and this is really where his character comes into play. What is it that Saul demonstrates that is significant for our passage and significant for us as we consider how we follow Jesus? Uh, I want to look at two traits uh, of who Saul is. First, uh, the zeal that has been shown for Saul, that he acts when others will not. Spirit of the Lord rushes in. He has a kindled and a great anger. He is in the line of the judges. He, he has that spirit like Samson. He issues that, that ultimatum of national responsibility, uh, just like is done in, in Judges 19. He leads in battle. He shares the risk. He doesn't ask anything of anybody that he's not going to do himself. Saul, at this point, is really the, the heroic leader that we love. I mean, history has a few of these characters who stand out where, where their leadership is, is incorruptible, who they are empowers people and is significant. You know, I think of the, the ancient Roman ideal as a guy named Cincinnaticus. He's the farmer, soldier, senator who is entrusted with absolute power to save Rome. And he does it. And then he turns the power back in. And so for centuries, they'd talk about how great that guy was. I think about in our nation, the stories about George Washington. You know, I'm, I'm not worried about the cherry tree story being true. There's a story about George Washington that I worry is false, but, but this is the one that I hope is true, and I find this out in the resurrection. Um, that Washington's out walking around as they're making an encampment. He's you know, doing his constitutional uh, walk in the morning, and they're putting up a, a wooden palisade to defend the camp. And there's this log they can't get up where they need it to go. All these guys are working on it, and their, their corporal uh, is, is you know, beating them with sticks and yelling at them to, to work harder. Washington's got this coat on. It's covering everything up. He comes up, and, and the... Uh, historically, it's accurate that, that Washington was a big guy, strong guy. <clears throat> he comes up, he gets the log, and he gets, helps them get it where it needs to be. He goes to the corporal. He says, why weren't you helping your men? The corporal says, I'm a, I'm a corporal, you know. I'm, I'm a supervisor. That's what I do. And uh, Washington kind of unbuttons the coat to show the collar, and he says, well, I'm the commander-in-chief. Next time you have a problem, call for me. Uh, he is sort of this embodiment of, of the hero soul of America. That's what Saul is right now. Saul is that embodiment of, of zeal, of a willingness to take action when others are not. <clears throat> He's principled, disciplined, self-sacrificial. Uh, we might have a little challenge and we say, well, yeah, he's, he's empowered by the Spirit of God. What, what else would you expect? And I want you to think back to last week as, as Rick was talking about 
responsibility and, and does scripture contradict itself? And how he talked, you remember the, the Macbeth illustration where, where you could say that Macbeth killed uh, his uncle? Is that, no. Yeah, who? King Duncan. I, I confused Macbeth and Hamlet. Um, you know, things happen. Uh, but, but was Shakespeare the one who's responsible for it? So when we look at what does it mean for the Spirit of God uh, to empower Saul, uh, we got to figure out what, what we're talking about. You know, does God's Spirit possess Saul and make him like Superman, He-Man, warrior guy? Uh, I told you, the only other place where this phrase is used, where the Spirit of the Lord rushes in, is with the judge Samson. And when you look at the book of Judges, the Spirit of the Lord rushes in to empower Samson to deliver God's people from oppression. It is not what gives him his strength. He demonstrates his strength outside of those contexts in which it is said that the Spirit of the Lord rushes in. So what I would say about what's going on here with Saul is that <clears throat> the Spirit rushes in that Saul would have the drive to deliver Israel. And so we've got to be really intentional about that, that we don't want to alleviate him of responsibility and we don't want to alleviate ourselves of responsibility for things when we talk about the Spirit. Something good has happened here in Saul. He has a zeal to act when others will not. And God's spirit gives purpose and drive to that zeal. But Saul also demonstrates an incredible grace. Uh, he is gracious in victory. Now this is important, especially when you think about ancient kings. Ancient kings did not take rivalry well. Um, they were often seen as the source of the law. They were, they were often viewed as semi-divine. Um, we know that the people of Israel have not had a king up to this point, so they don't have some of those same hang-ups. But what have they been asking for? We need a king like the other nations to go out in front of us. They might have some visions of Saul being a little bit like that. And so when, <clears throat> when the, the nation continues, we, we even see Israelite kings engaging in some of those same practices where they kill rivals or they kill rivals' children. I mean, you read through the Kings and the Chronicles, you've even got like a grandma killing her grandson so that she can continue to have power over the throne. So for Saul to show this grace would be an incredibly different sign. For his enemies, it might have been a sign of weakness. Those worthless men might have looked at it and been like, hey, you probably shouldn't have let me live, pal. I'm going to be a problem for you later. But that's what grace is. Grace is something that we don't deserve. And Saul shows this for these guys who don't deserve it. <clears throat> it's a reflection of God's character in the life of Saul. Now let's think about what, what is the purpose of this? Why is the author telling us these things about Saul? Uh, I told you the, the purpose of the passage to communicate what sort of king God showed the people they had, to reinforce God's choice of Saul, and to show something significant about God's saving power. And we've talked about that power, what it means for, for God to deliver the people and how God inspired the victory and empowers this grace. But why does that reflect on the choice of Saul as king? We remember those echoes from Judges, that there is deliverance when all hope is lost, which is a common theme in the Judges, that there's freedom from oppression. This shows that Saul is the anointed king, that, that despite the challenges we know are going to happen, Saul really is a figure that, that I think embodies uh, Francis Schaeffer's phrase. Francis Schaeffer used to say that we as the people of God uh, are, sorry, we as people made in the image of God um, <clears throat> who are still fallen because of our sin are, are glorious ruins. That there's, there's a hint there that there was something great uh, and yet there's also something that has been lost. And I, and I think overall that's kind of what I see in Saul. 
And we know God loves his people. We know they have preferred a king. And we know how Saul's going to turn out. But God is willing to bless his people in spite of that rejection. But I also want to come back to this idea of what kind of king Saul is going to be. Because <clears throat> we look at this and we think, hey, this is, this is great. You know, Saul is this heroic figure. How can it, how can it go bad? Where, where do things get off the rails? And that's where I think we need to go a little deeper into the passage because the author is already telling us where things are going to go wrong. I told you there's, there's echoes from the book of Judges. And let's think about that again. Who, who is it that Saul is similar to? Well, we've got an echo of Samson. When you read the Samson story, like, are you comfortable? I hope not. Like, when you read that, I, I hope you don't think that this is, this is all good. It's, it's a mixed bag at best. We have Samson who does great things for God but, but continually chooses disobedience. And then we have the echo of, of the Levite's concubine who is divided into 12 pieces and sent to the corners of Israel to show everybody how bad things have gotten. Well, sure, Saul's not dividing a human being. He's dividing an oxen. So it's, but it's still sort of a warning there that, that the status of the nation at the end of Judges has not changed. And then uh, Saul has a small echo of, of Gideon dividing his force into three companies. I mean, sure, that's just standard ancient warfare, but I think that it's there on purpose from our author. Because when you think about Gideon, you might think about a pretty sanitized version of his story. In Sunday school, we usually stop the story at one point. You know, we tell people about the fleece. Oh, you know, maybe Gideon's a little, little doubting. We see some of that in, in Saul, right? Uh, but then Gideon has this, this great military victory where God has dwindled down his force to like 300 guys, right? So it's, it's a great story. And so Saul, Saul's empowered by that. But you don't remember what comes after that with Gideon. The people of Israel come to Gideon and they say, well, we want you to be our king. And Gideon says, no, no, no. I'm not going to be your king. But then he names his kid Abimelech, and Abimelech means my dad is king. <clears throat> then Gideon gets everybody to bring him their golden jewelry. He melts it down, and he makes a vest out of it with which he uses to, to tell the future. Uh, and the text tells us that all Israel hoard after the vest. And that's what an Old Testament author is telling us is idolatry when they use that phrase, that Israel is cheating on God with a vest. So the Gideon story is not great. The Gideon story is also a warning. So there's really some, some warnings here in, in what's going to happen. You know, uh, judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We have a warning about character. And I want you to think back to Pastor Rick talking about chapter 10. That we've already seen some warnings about Saul. What were they? That, uh, <clears throat> that he was a bad shepherd? Uh, that he was spiritually unaware. You know, we know some things about Saul already that tell us his character is questionable. And I think the character we've seen here requires the same sort of examination. That Saul has the zeal where he's willing to act and he's gracious in victory. Now, I don't want to skip too far ahead and kind of, you know, you kind of know what's coming, something bad's going to happen with Saul. Um, but these are actually going to be the two things that get him into trouble. That, that he acts when he should wait. And he shouldn't be willing to go ahead of others. And then he demonstrates grace when God has commanded him to demonstrate vengeance. And so really these traits are not going to be all that they're cracked up to be because they're going to lead him away from obedience. I hope you're a little confused by that. That's okay. You're kind of like, well, gosh, how am I supposed to make sense out of what Saul's doing? I want you to suspend knowledge, but at the same time you can't get away from it. That's all right. Uh, what I really hope you're starting to wrestle with is, is, is God impossible? 
because the Spirit inspires this action of Saul, and yet at the same time, that same action later will get him condemned. And, and I'm glad you're starting to question that because it brings us to the place where we can talk about what this means for how we follow Jesus this side of the cross. I've told you that, that character is fate, and that's only kind of true. You know, the Stoics embrace this. They say that, that who you are and, and acting with, with character and virtue is more important than what happens to you, and since you can't control that anyway, what you can control is how you respond to it. And that's, that's partially true. I mean, you, I had a friend who was a, a hospice chaplain and she was really good with their computer system, and she was training somebody to come in and take over for her so she could go to a, a different uh, shift. And, and we were talking, she says, I know this person's going to be slow picking it up. She says, but that's, that's not moral. How I treat them is moral. Okay, great. Now, now you're starting to wrap your head around what character means and what character as fate means. <clears throat> but Saul is uh, continually shaped by his external circumstances. And shows us how his character became his fate in a really bad way. You know, we, don't, we have been warned by the author what Saul is going to be like. We, we don't have to sit up and say, no, that character wouldn't do that. Because there's been that scene at the end of each episode where we see Saul doing something shady. You know, we have been warned beforehand that something bad is going to happen. His obedience is contingent upon what was happening around him. He's anointed to shepherd and lead. But his drives would rule him more than his heart for God. And that's really the issue that's going to be faced as Saul is rejected as king, that his heart is not right as he pursues God. <clears throat> now, God used those drives to deliver Israel here, showing the people what kind of king they could and should have, and really to remind them that they are dependent upon God himself for salvation, because God has empowered this. God has inspired Saul like the judges of old. <clears throat> so what does that mean for you, living uh, as a follower of Jesus? What does that mean for you living where we have a new covenant, where God has promised us a heart of flesh and not a heart of stone, that God has promised us an ability to follow Jesus? You know, I don't think Jesus is presenting the Sermon on the Mount as like this unachievable ideal and, you know, just kidding, you don't actually have to do any of that. He's presented us with a heart that, that we should be able to follow him. We have Christ's righteousness counted as our own. And I think what we need to embrace here is that Christ's character is our fate. And I mean that in two senses. Uh, first off, Christ's character is our fate because we are counted in him. His righteousness is counted as ours. Uh, we have his atonement on behalf of us. So in a sense, Christ's character is for us. We are in Christ. That is our hope of glory. But Christ's character is our fate because it's also the goal and purpose to which we've been called. We have been commanded to have the same mind in you that is in Christ Jesus, to, to embrace his pattern of life, his way of thinking, and his habits of heart. <clears throat> that first sense where we are counted in Christ should impact our view of ourselves and inspire us in the second sense, to chase after him and pursue him as our goal and purpose. And that's typically the part that troubles us. How do we grow into the character of Christ? Should we expect or strive for perfection? Should there be some sort of switch that just gets flipped whenever we become Christians where we can do better? Uh, and this is really, I think, at the heart of what troubles us in Saul's trajectory. We look and we ask, could he have done anything different? Is there any way that there's hope for him? I think there's a couple principles, three principles of character that our text drives us towards, the, that I want us to look at together. But before we can engage those, those principles of character, 
you got to know what kind of character it is you're talking about. I've said that, that we are to pursue the character of Christ. And so what, what would be helpful is for you to think about some of those passages in the New Testament, the, the virtue lists, uh, Galatians chapter 5 with the fruit of the Spirit, First uh, Peter where he's talking about uh, get knowledge and from knowledge get virtue, from virtue get steadfastness, get self-control, you know, get all of these things together. Uh, none of those lists is intended to be an exhaustive list of, of all the good things you need. They are a presentation of, of a character that's pursuing Christ. So I want you to put that in, in the front of your brain now. Not, don't put that on the back burner. Be thinking about what a Christ-like life looks like. So then you can kind of keep that in mind as we look about a, a character that responds to life as Christ does. <clears throat> so these principles of character, is, it, it, strengths are important and can be used by God. Saul does good. You know, despite all of the foreshadowing of all the things that we know are going to happen, despite the challenges that are going to come later, what happens is good. There is salvation through God's spirit. There is grace shown to those who don't deserve it. What are your strengths? What is the thing that is easy for you in following Christ? Maybe you've got a, a great heart for worship. It's never a challenge for you to just kind of focus your intent on God uh, and, and have that time of worship. Maybe you're just naturally generous. You know, you've never really had to worry about thinking about other people. It's just come to you. Maybe you're one of those people the rest of us just struggle with and you're really, really patient. The rest of us are mad because you're patient and we're not. And you're naturally one of those people who should teach preschoolers because that ain't me. Um, <clears throat> it's just how it goes. Uh, maybe you're incredibly moral. You know, you're, you're that person that in high school, sex, drugs, and rock and roll don't appeal. You know, I'm fine with actually doing what my parents say and studying. You know, that's okay. That can be a strength. And these areas of strength are what you should focus on when it comes to doing something for the body of Christ, whenever it comes to your role in the kingdom and how you make it known and how you serve others. Like if you spend your whole time trying to chase after something you're not good at to, to do as your main thing, you're going to be frustrated. All of the literature of the last 30 years says if you pursue your strengths, you're going to find fruitfulness, you're going to find satisfaction, you're going to find a really good fit for who you are in the body of Christ. So you need to embrace those strengths. They're good. They can be used for good. <clears throat> but let's look at the second principle. That strengths are typically foundational to who we are, but character is formed. So let's consider Saul. His strengths are good, uh, and they line up here with what God is doing. I think about that, that game, that, that, uh, that board game that uh, I always tried to play as a little kid but could never win. The, you, know, you know the game Perfection? Ooh, fitting title, right, for this? You wind up a little timer, and you've got to drop in all these pieces that are in exact shape, and if you get them all in, it won't explode and make a giant mess. Sometimes your strengths will line up, all the pieces will be there, and it's great. But sometimes they won't, because Saul's strengths are not going to take him where he needs to go in obedience. <clears throat> now, if you're wondering, is that just like some situational ethics? Is, is God making this too hard where one time something's good and another time something's bad? Not at all. We've got to look at why this strength is useful at one point and, and disobedient at another. And it's because Scripture requires us to embrace uh, some tensions of Christ-like character. That we are to speak the truth in love. We are to be wise as serpents, gentle as doves. We are to bear one another's burdens when somebody fails, but we're also to embrace accountability and hold people to a standard. 
See, Scripture is asking us to live with things that are in tension. I don't like to use the word balance because sometimes obedience doesn't look like balance. It looks radical, and that's okay. And if it scares you a little, it's all right. Just embrace it. Um, <clears throat> but we need to embrace that discomfort. Your strength in being moral could become a stumbling block. I mean, can you imagine somebody who, who finds an easy road with a moral compass and has, has always done the right thing and it comes real naturally and they don't understand why other people can't do it? Can you imagine that person talking to the woman at the well? You know, can you imagine the person who is just naturally generous trying to teach a class about financial stewardship and saying, hey, maybe you, know, you should pay your bills instead of you know, feeding the homeless. Oh my gosh, they don't know what to do whenever they see that person. There's a great story about an old pastor named Criswell and how uh, he kept giving away money and they had to give him a raise and went directly to his wife. Um, <clears throat> but that's, a, that's another story. But that's a <laughs> you know, if your natural gifts are in one, one particular area, when you are called upon to serve or to care for someone who's got something from another area, you're going to struggle. You know, if you're really just gifted for leadership, and then you come across 2 Corinthians and you see that God's power is made perfect in weakness, it's going to make you disappointed. It's going to make you struggle when you have to take a back seat and you're used to being the guy who's in the driver's seat or girl, as the case may be. So how do we form a character like this? A um, couple of books I want to recommend. Uh, we just finished the class that, that Pastor Tim was teaching last week, uh, How People Change. If you can get the book for that, I mean, that was a great class that talks about a lot of these issues, but the, the two that were really formative for me over the last few years is I've been making my own study. Um, Dallas Willard's book, Renovation of the Heart, um, and N.T. Wright's book, After You Believe, Why Christian Character Matters. Uh, they both kind of focus on this idea of how do we, how do we uh, orient our heart around the character of Christ. And, and they embrace this idea of, of habit forming. And I use that word very intentionally uh, because we do need to create habits of heart because our, our approach to character is usually anything but habitual. You know, we know, tend to know where our strengths are. You might not know where all of yours are, but you tend to know where your strengths are. And when it lines up with, with what God is asking you to do, you're good, you're happy. Uh, but whenever you have to interact with people who have different strengths or when you're called to live outside of those strengths to be obedient to God, it's a struggle. You either, you either fail and you're like, well, I'll try harder next time. You might have some regret. You might just shrug it off and say, nobody's perfect. Uh, and, and at that point, grace becomes an excuse for failure instead of a motivation for growth. Now, I asked you to put in the front of your brain those, those New Testament virtues and when we only lean on our strengths, we look at those and we pick and choose. But the fruit of the Spirit, that's a singular word. We're not asked to pick, oh yeah, gentleness, that works for me and kindness. But that whole self-control thing, I'm not down with that. You know, I, I, three out of nine, I'm good, right? That's not what we're called to. We're called to embrace this as a whole character of life. And the struggle with that is sometimes revealed. You know, John Wesley looked at that and he said, well, gosh, there's got to be like this second state of grace that he called Christian perfection. And Wesley even said that you should only expect the fruit of the Spirit from people who have been perfected. You know, oh, there's Christians, but then there's Christians. It's not the way it works. That's not the New Testament presentation of who we are as followers of Jesus. <clears throat> we are called, as Jesus says, uh, to live after him. I don't think Paul's just aiming high when he says imitate him as he imitates Christ. Obedience really is expected, even when it's inconvenient, even when it's difficult, even when it's outside of your comfort, and even when it's risky. 
And to make that obedience a habit of heart is to embrace some, some practice. You know, you don't get good at things by, by failing, 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 and then suddenly one day it's going to happen. I'm paraphrasing C.S. Lewis here, but he said, you know, if you're struggling to love your neighbor, do loving things for your neighbor. You know, the practice of loving your neighbor will create the affection. Our culture tends to put it the other way around. You shouldn't have to do anything that you don't feel like doing because that wouldn't be genuine. So you've got to have the affection first, and then you can do it. If you feel like forgiving, you should forgive. But if you've got some bitterness, you don't have to do that at all. You know, if you feel like you, know, you care for somebody, then you should do some caring things. That's not ever going to create anything different in our lives. This time I'm actually quoting Lewis. The only people who achieve much are those who want knowledge so badly that they seek it while the conditions are still unfavorable. Favorable conditions never come. I would change that just a little bit. Saul found favorable conditions. His strengths were fully on display. It was the right time. He was the right guy. And God used him for great success. This time. Obedience must be sought in inconvenience and difficulty. My old boss used to say that, that we rise to our lowest level of training. And he was talking about Marines in combat and how, uh, you know, we're doing some training. These guys keep falling asleep. Oh, you know, if we were really in combat, I'd stay awake. If we were really in combat, I'd run faster, shoot better, jump higher. <clears throat> and he says, no, no, you wouldn't because you rise to your lowest level of training. Same thing's true about our faith. If we're talking about the big things, oh, I'd never deny Christ. I'd never cheat on my wife. I'd never, you know, I'd die for my faith. Well, what tells us if you would is how you do the little things. Are you a regular giver? Are you focusing on prayer even when you're distracted? Are you reaching out to those around you as a, as a realistic habit of your life? Because that's what tells us how you'll respond when the big days come. <clears throat> now, our ability to love people when it's hard, to give when it hurts, and to pray when we're distracted, care for orphans and widows, that's, that's in our commitment to, to stop uh, trying harder and really to start forming a spiritual habit of Christ's character. Which brings us to the final principle of character. Christ is our only hope for being formed in character. Saul lives under a covenant without Christ. Uh, I, I don't want you to look at that and say, oh, because he's hopeless, I'm hopeless. Or because he was before Christ, he's hopeless. I want you to look at him just as we've seen him. Uh, and we've talked about what it means for Christ's character to be our fate. Um, and, and even in spite of that, you might look at that and say, I, I don't know, though. I, you know, I've, I've been trying to change for years. And it hasn't happened. You know, I, I've been praying. I've been doing all the things I think I'm supposed to do. What is it that's going to change? I want you to think about this in light of Christ. And don't absolve Saul of his failures, but, but to look at this in light of, as Hebrews says, as, a, as something that has come for our benefit now that God has spoken in his son. I've talked about these habits. How do we create Christ-like character? Habits can help us avoid sin management where our strengths are celebrated and, and everything else is just regretted or ignored. But habits alone can't get us away from that sin management. There's, a, there's an interplay here. I talked about that, that moral spiral down in the book of Judges. There's also a spiral that happens between our heart motivation and our practices of life. You know, if we, if we look at all the trouble we get into for, for failing to tell the truth, you know, I don't, I don't like lying because it gets me in trouble. Well, then if you create rules, you're going to wind up with some legalism. Okay, so I'm going to stop lying and I'm going to create these habits for truth. But if instead you say, I want to embrace truth because Jesus himself is a truth with a capital T, 
That's the heart motivation that can get you there. And these two things have to feed off each other and help each other, just like Lewis was saying. You might not be able to generate some heart for your neighbor, but you can do some loving things. What you really have to have is that baseline heart that says, I want to do what Jesus has called me to do. That's the foundation of all character shaping right there. When you have no other heart motivation, maybe you got something that's one of them respectable sins that like is getting you good results. My, my idol of control is getting me everything I need, for now at least. But you know it's not okay. That heart motivation that says, I want to do what Jesus has for me will start that spiral of habit and heart that will change who you are. And sometimes it's got to start outside of us. You know, I, I would say almost all the time. Because if you could do it on your own, you already would have, right? But this is where we come into each other's lives as the body of Christ. Hold each other accountable, pray for each other, do some healing prayer for each other that, that our hearts would be changed uh, and reshape each other's lives. So I hope you're invested in a community group uh, with some fellow travelers on this road. Because this character thing is hard because we fought it for so long. But Jesus has told us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The challenge is in releasing that which we could never own. We have to give up that illusion that somehow we're going to make ourselves better by trying harder next time. We have to embrace that, that there, there's some different practice I've got to do and there's some different heart that, that I've got to ask Christ to change. <clears throat> we must embrace his character as fate. And when we do that, we'll see our strengths like Saul's success here, but we'll also learn obedience when everything has changed and we have to respond to new situations we couldn't have prepared for and love people that we couldn't have seen coming into our lives. And then we learn grace, a grace that releases us from the burden of that old character but still empowers us to be shaped into the image of Christ. One of the practices we, we do as, as a family, as a community of believers that that reinforces our hearts after Christ is, is that we take communion together. We observe the Lord's Supper. So if the servers would, would please come down. Um, the real, I mean, there are a, a ton of things that Scripture has to say about taking the Lord's Supper together. One of the things I want to emphasize is, is that proclamation that is involved here, that together we are proclaiming the Lord's death and resurrection until he comes again. And in that, we see new life, and we are encouraged, and new life is available. Uh, we practice communion in a way that, that a mentor of mine referred to as close communion. The table is open for all followers of Jesus. So if you come from a, another Christian tradition, if you would have been able to take communion in, in your home church or if you're a visitor here and you would be able to take communion somewhere else, we want to invite you uh, to do so. If you have kids with you, uh, we ask that, uh, that parents who know where their kids are in their faith journey, that they would be supervising that. And if they just want to come down and receive a blessing from our servers, that'd be fine. And we have a, a gluten-free option here in the middle. But we'd be delighted to pray for you if, uh, if for some reason you can't uh, observe communion, observe the Lord's Supper with us today. Uh, but let's pray as we prepare to, to take from the Lord's table. Gracious God, we come before you praying that you would draw our hearts after you. That in those, all those places where we are challenged by places where we failed before, uh, that you would give us grace for ourselves, that we would know your love and care, uh, and that you would inspire our hearts to, to start that cycle where where we can see some habits and some community and all of these things come together uh, to find new character, find new ways of responding, and that we would not be content uh, to respond to the world around us in ways that, that have failed us from proclaiming your love. We pray that uh, as we come to your table, we would know that love well uh, and that we would then give it to others. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This message titled, Character is Fate, was given by Ben Warner at Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. This message is part of a series from the book of 1 Samuel. 
For more information and resources from Christ Community, please visit us at www.ccclh.org.